0: What a joyful morning today day, weekend celebration. Um, grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the letter of James. It's good to uh, be together again to dig into God's holy word. You'll find James late in the New Testament, after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or forgot your Bible, you'd like one. We have some on the on the rack there in the back of the room. In addition to some pens and some sermon notes, if you're a note taker and be blessed with our study this morning to grab hold of some thoughts or to make some questions along the way that you could continue in God's Word throughout the week. Be my prayer. Last week, it was my joy to kick off our sermon series in James, a series that we're calling Faith at Work. In last week's intro to the letter, I also preached through verse 1. We are passionate about expositional preaching of God's word. And um, if you missed that sermon and want to know a little bit more of our heartbeat of why we preach the way we do and really valuing God's word, holding it high, you can catch the podcast from last week and uh, jump in with us that way. Let me read you verse one, James one, one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Today I'll preach verse two through four. And uh, a sermon that I've titled, Gospel Joy in Trials and Steadfast Faith. Let's look at our passage together. James 1, 2 through 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First, verse 2. As we dig in, I wanna wanna focus on the latter part of verse 2 and then the imperative command found at the front of the verse. James says, My brothers. James addresses here his audience, his brothers, not his blood brothers, but his adopted brothers. His adopted family is what he's referencing here. The wide audience that he's writing to is a dispersed people of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are redeemed by God through the blood of Jesus. This is his family. They might be distant, but they are loved. Here at Disciples Church, we we join James in the joy that it is to be family in Christ. I don't mean the loose sense of the word, the way you might kind of refer to as a friend, as family, or someone that you're close to, but I mean the most intimate sense of the word family. We who are saved by Jesus are blood-bought family. We've studied this through and through, and if you continue with us, you'll Come to know this great reality. Maybe maybe you've had great falling out with your blood family. Or maybe you deeply love your blood family. But there is something extra special, maybe even more special, when we come to rightly understand what it means to be blood-bought family. That this family will be eternally family. Depending on your blood family's standing with God through Christ, you may only know them or walk with them for a time. So in this sense, there's something, a deep, deep unity that we share. And it's special. And it changes our lives. And I pray that if you've not known that in the past, that you would come to know it in journey with us as we pursue Christ together. In many ways, we are more than just family. We're God's family. And I just pray that that causes you to sing praise in your heart to know Christ and to be His. I want to also thank you for your support of Jennifer and I in these last three years, as we've loved Piper as our foster daughter and fought to make her our own. And by God's grace, now she is a part of our family in adoption. The adoption that happened yesterday, June 8, 2018. Or Friday now. Um, Most importantly, though, we ask that you would join us in prayer and in walking through her life as we long for the winning of her soul. That it would be God's plan to save her and to make her a part of his eternal blood-bought family. That is our greatest hope. Amen? Church, adoption is not second-rate. This is how the sovereign God ordained from the beginning that he would bring each of us into his eternal family through adoption. Let us praise him for his mighty work in adopting us and truly valuing each other as family, the family that we are forever. I love you, and you're very precious to me. Next, James says... When you meet trials of various kinds, brothers, family, when you meet trials of various kinds, he says, when do you notice that? In other words, you're going to not maybe. But when, in other words, if you're living on this planet after the fall of man, before Christ ushers in his new kingdom, we will have struggles and trials Of various kinds there is going to be pain and suffering and injustice and hatred and cheating and death and murder there will be tears and there will be loss you must understand while in this life you will suffer struggle and experience great trials it is inevitable. Because of the fallen nature of our world, the unavoidable truth is we will suffer. God blesses us time and time again in his holy word to awaken us, to remind us of this reality. For example, First Peter 4.12. Peter says to the church, do not be surprised at the fiery trial When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's a a demonic lie that has perpetuated itself through our modern society. Men have found ways to, to pimp out a people by selling a prosperity gospel for their own good. And it is a deception and a manipulation of the gospel in the greatest way. It sets people up to make themselves the ultimate end goal, their prosperity, their health. It, 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 it scratches temporary itches and, and, and leaves us completely ready to be, to be broken, to be undone. Oh, I pray that we see through the lies of of this deceptive teaching, of prosperity teaching, and we would see clearly the Word of God and God's love for us to warn us, to awaken us to the reality that you will struggle, you will suffer, that the greatest of faith that are recorded in the Holy Scriptures did not live lives of prosperity in their temporary season of mission. Instead, they were killed for their faith, martyred, beaten, abused, stricken from family, manipulated with injustices, hated, persecuted. That we, the church, would have a right view of our reality in this time and space. That we would not be surprised when fiery trials come upon us. That we would not fall into the the mistake of saying, God, where are you when we run into great struggle, that we would instead know what the scriptures teach us, which is that God is more present in our lives than we even know how to give him credit for. He is not abandoning us. He is not not absent, but he is at work in all these things. Peter says, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you when you're tested by fiery trials. Here's the problem. As Western Americans, we often are surprised, are we not? When things don't go our way, when bills come upon us, when, when accusations come at us, when jobs are lost, when loved ones walk away. Our Western modern mindset is we want life to work. We want life to be predictable and orderly and obedient to the rules. And the rule is this. If you live right, then good things will happen. If you live poorly, then consequences come. But what happens when that rule is flipped on its head? What happens when you live right and then the rug is pulled out from underneath you? When good people suffer bad things. Without a right biblical perspective of what God's told us about these things, we will wrongly, sinfully look at God and say, I want my money back. We're upset and sinfully upset at God. Because we have grabbed hold of a worldview and a perspective of what of that He owes us, that we are due. If we read Scripture clearly and rightly and continually, then we will not be surprised. Suffering is here. And if it's not here for you right now, then it's on its way. It's down the street. It's around the corner. The bus is pulling up. Church, we will suffer. This is why we thank God for today. And if He entrusts us with tomorrow then we will steward our lives for his glory tomorrow. We don't hold him in contempt to say, "Look how good I did today, God, you owe me another one." If we read scripture correctly, we will see God's hand, his providential hand even in our suffering. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 so, for it has been granted to you, it's been gifted to you for the sake of Christ that you not only believe what a gift saving faith is, but that you not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And it is a gift, it's an honor to suffer for his sake. This is so much greater than the most dedicated war hero who would count it an honor to bleed or to die on a battlefield for his king. This is greater than that. Do we have that perspective that it is a gift that his name would be made much of even if it's in and through our hardship or trials? If you truly trust God, And hold nothing is more valuable than him. When the fire comes and rages in our life, and it will. If you hold nothing more valuable than God, you will not burn up. You will not be overwhelmed at that trial or that suffering. Instead, you will be what fire is to gold. You will be refined. This is so huge. I pray you don't miss this this morning. Our trials, our suffering, will refine us at our very core if we cling to God and trust Him in faith through it all. But if you hold on to something more valuable, and this is the danger for every one of us, when we have beautiful, wonderful kids that God's entrusted to us, or a great ability or skill, or finally got to that to that job you've been dreaming about for so long. Finally, were able to buy that car, that house. Finally saved up enough for your dream vacation. If you cling to anything more than God, then you hold on to something that can be consumed when the fire rages. Do you see that? And if that's where your hope and your joy is, you too will be undone. If clinging to God above all, then we are not undone. We are refined in the fire, the trials of life. 1 Peter 1.7 These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Church, this allows us to embrace our exile position in this land, in this temporary season that we're in. This is not our home. We long for the city that is to come. And yet we remain faithful in this time to make much of His holy name. It allows us to not only endure suffering... When it comes, but here's the kicker. The scriptures constantly speak of Christians being joyful in suffering. Do you see that in the first part of our verse, James 1 verse 2? Count it all joy. The word count here is an imperative, it's a command. Why? Because joy in the midst of trials is not a natural response. Is it? The empowered mode and command for Christ followers is to count the trials we face in this short life with all joy. Not with some joy, not squeeze a little joy out of it, but count it all joy. Pure joy, total joy, sheer joy. Why do we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Two main reasons this morning. Number one, because our God wins. And therefore, so do we who are in Christ. Church, let us not be surprised when the world hates us. That's what Jesus said will happen. Because we love him, because we are devoted to him, those who are of the world, those who you might even love more than anyone else, who hate Jesus, because of your devotion to Jesus, can and will come to a place where they even hate you too. When the world's coming at us, when nothing makes sense in the world, we're not surprised. Why? We're not even not surprised, but we have joy. Why? Because of our victor. Because of the one who sits on the throne. Because of he who holds all things together by the word of his command. Because of he who has overcome the world. As big as the evil system of darkness and sin, as massive as Satan's army is, as rampant as sin and selfishness is, as lost as people are in sin and idol worship and self-glorification, as dark as the sin of rape or child abuse or human trafficking or genocide or abortion or sexual perversion or corporate greed or false worship is in our world, He wins. And we who are in Christ are in him, and we win too. And so we're not undone by these great atrocities. Instead, we cling to the joy that we have in Christ and the joy that it is to suffer for his namesake, for his glory. Jesus said in John fifteen nineteen, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because those whom God has chosen to make new in Christ are no longer of the world, but of Christ, now members of his household, the world has a true angst and hatred for the church. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation, they will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Luke 21, 16 and 17, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my own namesake. But in John 16, in all of this beautiful, wonderful warning of Christ for his bride, he gives us this. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Do you see it? Do you see the rock bed of our hope and our joy in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of great heartache and the temporary things that are lost and stolen and taken The influence and the power of this world is powerful. But I'm here to say today it's not all powerful. One greater than it, mightier than its prince has come and has conquered it. The world did its utmost to battle him, but the Son of God prevailed. Amen? The world is a conquered world. It has been conquered for us in Christ. So let us take courage. The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes beat fiercely upon us, but let them only drive us closer to Christ. Some of you have heard my testimony, and some of my and Jennifer's hardest days of anguish, as a very broken foster system and court system, took years to make a decision that should have taken days or weeks. Delay after delay, injustice after injustice, people being fought for that could care less about this little girl who showed no interest. And, and I had this fleshly fear that would stir up, making me think, that I, we just got to get to the adoption. I just got to get for her to be legally mine, and then all this goes away, and it will be fine. And I was hanging my hope and my peace in that and then it dawned on me but Natalie my other daughter could not live through the rest of the day and God doesn't owe me tomorrow with her so who am I to think that just because I get to adoption with Piper like somehow I've arrived like somehow all the fight and all the injustice goes away that's a, that's a false hope. Somehow thinking that I just got to get possession and then, I'll, and then it'll be good. I'll protect it. Oh, <laughs> what kind of ego is that? No, God is on the throne. God ordains our days, He's numbered the hairs on our head. He is oh. at the helm. And so I, I trust Him. And so we begin to loosen our grip to say, God, in your time, in your perfect way, these will happen. You've given us today with her. Let us steward it well. And if you give us tomorrow, then we will joyfully wait to do it again. The scriptures are clear that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It is God who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 2.21 It is Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28.18 So yeah, there were days where I wanted to go find the back alley and find the judge and plead with the judge. But I had access to a greater judge with a greater power. And I had to learn to trust in him and his time and his way. Church, we must stand in the promise of the good news of Jesus Christ that his victory on our behalf That means one day there will be no more death and tears. No more injustices. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When we walk by faith in Jesus, we have joy in the midst of our trials because we understand who He is and who we are in Him. Amen? I pray, I pray that truth is a rock bed under your feet this morning that changes the way you do your life and you engage this world from this day forward. This is James' aim in these things. Yeah, we will struggle. But praise the Lord. The master we serve is the victor. He is the commander of it all. And we who are in Christ are his forever. Jesus, our king, our bloody champion, our God, has overcome the world. That's what he declares. Is that truth underneath your feet? Is it the filter through which everything that comes to pass, you engage? So why do we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? That's number one, because he's the victor. We understand who we are in him. Number two is because according to his great word, his scripture, God will use our trials for his glory and our good. His glory is why we live, church. It's the highest aim, it's the highest privilege to believe that God will, will use great distress and trials in our lives. And in that, he will receive glory, is a great foundation we hold on to to say I, my life is not my own it's back to what we talked about last week i live for him and if my engaging in this trial means he is glorified then so be it then that is my deepest prayer my my greatest prayer so when we're fighting for a loved one who's who's on a deathbed with cancer or there's this great injustice coming at us yeah we pray for victory we pray for healing but our deepest prayer our greatest prayer is god be glorified in this In this temporary time, in this temporary space. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, His purpose for our life, that we're called for His purpose. And we trust in his word that it will work together for good. And yeah, you might not see the good that comes out of that sickening event. That gut-wrenching thing that happened. You might not see it for a year, for 20 years, maybe even in a lifetime. But we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Amen? In God and his promises. If you don't trust him, if you don't believe his promises, if you don't have faith in him, you will not respond to trials with joy. You will respond with fret, with fear, with anger, and with worry. Now some of you are chomping at the bit to ask, Pastor, how do we do this? How? You said, why? Now how? Here's the answer. You can't. can't. You can't do it. You won't. You won't. It's one of the biggest follies and misses of the modern church. When we don't fully and rightly understand the gospel of Jesus and who we are in Christ, we miss the how we do any of the Christian life. And you will feel, without that right gospel foundation, you will feel like it's a weight that you just can't lift. And it is a weight you can't lift. We can only count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds in the power of God. Through the regeneration of your life and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. If you treat church, if you treat this sermon as just give me a couple things to grab hold of to do and I'll go do them, and you miss the gospel, you miss the foundation of Christ and his power and work in your life, then you miss it all. You're looking for religion. And not true life with Christ. Not gospel good news. Power. The power of God. Our Lord himself. He looked beyond the trial set before him for the joy that was set before him. That's Hebrews 12.2. The perfect promise of God and his plan of redemption. Jesus himself modeled this. Peter instructs the saints in 1 Peter 4.16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter's saying it's not shame in enduring fiery trials and hardships in this exile time. Don't let it get you down with shame. Instead use it to God's glory. If you suffer as a Christian if you suffer because you stand with Christ and live for Jesus you'll glorify His name. What name? The name of Christ. The name that you represent in all you do. You stand tall only in the power of Christ. Only in the name of Christ. We have joy in the ability to do this only because of Christ. And even in our shackles or our slavery or our sickness or our trials, we represent Christ. You must... Understand and cling to the power of Christ who is at work in all whom he has saved. The joy we have, church, is a gospel joy. It's not just a joy you muster up. It's, it's the overflow of the gospel in your life. The, the grace of God to set you an undeserving enemy of his free and to make you new to empower you with the Holy Spirit, to equip you with the Word, that you would grow in righteousness, that you would live for His glory. Don't ever walk away from a message like this going, I just got to work harder. I, me, no, it's not just you. It's Christ in you and through you. You must remain desperate for Him in all you do. Look to Jesus. Walk in Jesus. Never let the storms you encounter be absent of the presence of Jesus in your mind and in your heart. I'm not really into cheesy sayings or or pithy phrases, but I really love this one. Stop telling God how big your storm is and start telling your storm how big your God is. Do you see? See God. See His presence. Cling to Him. Walk in His power and His strength. Our peace is grounded in Jesus, our victory is grounded in Jesus. Our security is grounded in Jesus. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, though I preach on that verse for days, but we'll move on to verse three. Look at it with me. James 1:3: "For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Joy and trials will test your faith. This is a good thing. Because faith that is tested, now watch this, is not faith that is still or stagnant. It breaks my heart to see many people claim faith in God. And when you ask them about their journey, their life of sanctification, their joyful service of him as king, their participation in the church. No, 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 I just, I went to church back in the day, I I walked an aisle in 1982, I said a prayer. They're they're looking back to a faith that they rose a flag one day and then they walked away from it. It's just a faith that's just still, it's just stagnant. And yet the scriptures nowhere speak of true faith being that way. Instead, real faith is only a gift of God, but it, it, it's at work. It's lived out. It's a faith that produces steadfastness. It's not faith that subsides or wanders off. No, it stays. It, it finishes. It perseveres. What does it mean to have our faith tested? It means it's one thing to say you believe when it doesn't cost you anything. To say you're committed to something is one thing, but to have that commitment tested is the true measure of your faith. See, we don't want easy believism that religion perpetuates. What is easy believism? It's the idea that you just say you believe and that's all your faith ever does. But is it? Many who call themselves Christians do so because they grew up in church, they had a few really emotional experiences, maybe they had a time where they really faithfully served the church, served God. Maybe they walked an aisle, repeated a prayer after somebody else. And ever since then, profess faith in Jesus. But it's a faith that's long gone. It's not a faith that's transforming and and molding and maturing and sanctifying as the scriptures speak that it always is. Instead, it's a faith that Jesus says very clearly, many will stand before him one day and say, look at all the things I did for you. And he will look back at them and say, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. Church, it is vital that our faith endures, that our faith continues and perseveres. Will it have struggles and seasons? Yeah, absolutely. But it never is just one and done. It never just walks away and drifts. It's alive, it grows, it matures. True faith Is a commitment to and a trust in God. It's not just a part of someone's life, but it's all of your life. You don't just add Jesus to your life and then add him to other priorities and commitments you have. No, the former life is put on the altar and is exchanged for one that is all about Jesus. Yeah, in the early stages of that journey, you might be an infant in faith, and that's okay. There's growth, there's maturity. Some I've run into over my 20 years of pastoral ministry have been stuck in that infant stage for a long time. It wasn't until they got plugged into a a group of people and, and preaching of the word and discipleship whereby they were engaged and not left alone and known and loved and challenged, And faithful that that infancy finally was a thing of the past. And the the hand-holding and the the binkies and the diapers were put away. (laughs) And there's growth. And, And man, I'm telling you, it's one of my favorite testimonies. When those who are of older age or have lived many years, who once hung their hat on that easy believism of the past and are engaging the gospel and the church in a way they never have. And the light's coming on, and they're blown away. And they engage. See, that's the thing. See, in your pride, you can easily say, no, 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 it would be so embarrassing to admit for so long I, I did, I missed it. That's your pride, man. Throw that away. Humble yourself to say, praise God, I'm here. I'm willing to grow. And to see some who are in their, their 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s go, I'm ready, let's go. I've sat with men who are who are in their last stretches of life who are fighting great disease. I'm going, God's not done with you yet. Think of all that He might do with you just in the coming weeks and months if you will just continue to give yourself to Him. The model that will leave for a generation coming behind you. So maybe you sit here today and go, yeah, my kids are grown and they've moved on. But again, it's not just about your blood family. It's about God's family and other kids and other men and women who might walk in your wake one day and learn to grow and mature in Christ because of your willingness to humble yourself and mature in Christ. I pray you see that as good news. The New Testament is filled with examples of people who, when it was convenient and self-benefiting, they followed Jesus. When they could fit him into their schedule, they served Jesus. Maybe even gave significant parts of their life for a season. But when circumstances changed, their faith, their trust in him, their commitment to him changed. It no longer made him their priority. They didn't want to serve him no matter what it cost. They didn't persevere. They turned away. They went on to other things and other priorities. All throughout the Gospels and the Epistles we see this reality. But Jesus is not someone who will be added to your other priorities. Think about what you're saying about him if that's the way you think about him. He's not someone we negotiate with to share our affections with other things. No, when you truly see and savor Him, you will commit yourself to Him. When God gives us saving faith, and it's a faith that comes face to face with incredible obstacles and hardship and even suffering, you'll stand fast. Yeah, you might wail and you might fall down. You might need brothers and sisters to help hold you up and pray with you and get in the trench with you, but you will endure. It's a faith that continues. It's a faith at work. It isn't pulled over and parked on the side of the road or put in a box to be revisited later. I'd love to see people that God convicts in moments and seasons like this whereby you might have just made some pretty significant decisions and bought some new nice things or engaged some new commitments for extracurricular activities, and all that now is challenged. I love to watch people go. It doesn't matter what it costs. He will be first. It doesn't matter how promising that new job is, or how much we enjoy that extra bedroom in that new house, He will be first. Whatever it costs. Here we go. So those things are temporary. And they're fleeting. And they'll burn in the fire. But not him. Not who I am in him. And, and then to see many of you make radical changes over the years and seasons to come, and, and then to look back and go, we're at the best place we've ever been in our marriage, in our in our family life. In, Even in the hardships we're facing, even though money's maybe tighter than it's ever, the joy that is a reality in our lives is like never before. You you, you can't, can't manipulate someone to that. It doesn't add up. It's only God who does that in and through people. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, my faith or my commitment to Jesus has never been that serious. It's always just been a part of my life or always something to consider from the outside. What James is going to help us see throughout this letter is that true faith where Jesus is Lord is a faith that remains. It's a faith that changes our lives. Gives us a new motivation and a power to honor him and serve him all of our days. And it doesn't mean you won't struggle. Oh, you're going to struggle. <laughs> why we love being together so much. We need each other. We love it when a brother or sister calls and says, I'm struggling. I'm not seeing it. But instead of me convincing you why I'm right, love me enough to tell me what I'm unwilling to see or hear right now. Oh, when that humility plays, and you're going to be blessed by that, and that phone call go, thank you for doing this. Praise God. Praise God for that gift. What is so cool about what James is saying here in the opening of his letter is he's not the only one who said this. All of the apostles who either walked with Jesus or went on to plant the early church after Jesus got this too. So let me just name drop for a few moments here real quick. You heard of a guy named Paul? Maybe a guy named Peter. A couple quotes. You ready? You ready? Romans 5, 3 through 4. See if this sounds familiar. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us? Amen. A guy named Peter. Peter said this 1 Peter 1 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Joy in trials produces an enduring faith that brings steadfastness and endurance unto the glory of God. And we see it again and again and again. And people wonder, hey, what's the Christian life like? Here it is. As we experience hard things in this life, it is always a foundation of joy in Christ. It's on a bed of thanksgiving and praise for who we are in Him. Not for our circumstances, but for who we are in Christ. And can I just say, this is not because we're crazy people. (laughs) Or that these guys were crazy. To the world, this is crazy. To those who are not in Christ, they don't get it. Scriptures say it will be like folly to them. It will look like madness. So it either is that or it is real out of a power of God's regeneration our life that only when you're saved you truly get and understand and celebrate. It's a living hope because of the gospel, because of our identity in Christ, because we are not His just now, but forever. This is the rock bed of our joy in trials that produces genuine faith, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. It is steadfast. This is how Paul was able to say that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Continually sorrowful, continually imprisoned for unjust things stricken from his family, beaten and starved. Real reason for fleshly sorrow, right? But rejoicing because of who he was in Christ. I plead with you not to dismiss this truth today. Some of you who are missing who Christ is Through and through, you might claim Christianity, you claim Jesus, but you live your lives like you don't truly know the fullness of who he is to you. The idea of joy in the midst of trials is so foreign to you, and I pray it just doesn't stay that way. Church, see this as so central to the Christian life. See it as good news, good news in Christ in the midst of hardship. Now, it doesn't mean that the suffering will be brief. It could be lifelong, but it will be brief in comparison to eternity. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just take that verse with you and memorize it. And memorize it and speak it to yourself and remind yourself of that truth. This is one of God's blessed works in our trials, to draw our hearts and our hopes to our eternity with him. A huge source for our joy in the midst of our struggles. The harder our struggles are, and the longer they last, the more hope in and looking forward to going to his eternal feast we have. This is a sweet gift, to reorient our hope and our joy from temporary things to eternal things. Things that will not satisfy lastingly, and things that will satisfy forever. I want you to see, church, this as normal this morning. I want you to be confronted this morning. If what you've known is only easy believism, may Jesus truly be Savior and Lord your identity in every way. To see the gospel in its fullness. I pray God is showing you the depth of faith and trust in Him that is beyond what maybe it's been for you. That draws you to Him. To cling to Him and trust in Him. And I realize, church, this doesn't happen overnight. It's a a journey of sanctification and study Ask any of the members of our church, and they'll tell you about the sweet testimony of great growth, but that it takes time. Don't miss James says here in verse 3. He says, for you know. He wants his listeners not just to know information, but the knowing he wants them to have is a confidence. You know this. It's a foundation for your lives. An understanding that endures and provides the room to grow and mature in these things. If you're feeling weak or not anywhere near this, don't let that cause you just to give in. But let it spur you forward to getting more plugged in. To being known and discipled so you can mature and be refined in your faith for God's glory and your good. Finally, here in verse 4, James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Boy, you're saying, wow, that's, those are lofty things. Church, we want steadfastness to have its full effect, right? To produce maturity in Christ, lacking nothing. Now, You can read that verse in a self-centered way or in a Christ-centered way. You can think about you trying to be perfect, you trying to be complete, you trying to lack nothing and go, oh, I can't do it. And again, I'll say, you can't. But in Christ, you are. And you can. Don't see what James is pointing to as anything that is just you apart from Christ. Perfection, completeness, and lacking nothing is only a reality in Christ. We are so utterly dependent for Him because we'll never attain these things on our own. That was, to attain it on your own, do you realize, was the lie of the devil to Adam and Eve? Have this yourself. Leave Him and you have it. It was the same lie that was pitched by Satan to Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus denied him three times with the reality of Scripture to not engage the lie, but to remain in his perfection for our sake. No, perfection is only found in Christ Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3:12, "Not that I have attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own." In Galatians chapter 3 verse 3, he gives warning, "Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That we would not ever get to a place where we're saying, look at me, look what I'm doing. But we remain dependent and desperate for him every step of the way. Only in Christ do we stand before God in perfection. What James is after here, though, I think is less of a reference to that final glorified perfection and more about maturity in righteousness because of Christ's work in our lives. King David said it well in a prayer in Psalm 131, 1 and 2. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David has grown and matured through great troubles and afflictions and temptations that he's already endured. So he's speaking of moving from being a nursing infant to a newly weaned child who continues to cling to his mother, that we would remain desperate for Christ and continue to cling to him in every way. This is what James is getting at here. He grows us and sanctifies us, but we never graduate from our cling to him. Only in Christ are we complete, Colossians 2.10. We have been filled in him. That's the idea of being made complete in him. Lacking nothing, which leads us to that final phrase. Only in Christ do we lack nothing. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, you know where I like to go when we find that phrase the famous Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, David said. I shall not be in want. Better translated, what he's saying there is, I shall not lack. Well, lack what, David? What are you referencing there? Well, you go for just a few chapters to Psalm 34, 9, and 10. David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That there is a satisfaction in Christ alone, that you lack nothing in him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack any good thing. Paul will be quick to say everything compared to Christ is rubbish because he's found what it is to be in him. I pray you know this to be true in your own life, growingly moving forward. I pray this is good news to your soul today. May it forever change us and propel us forward in Christ. Will you stand with me? I want to close with the words of Peter. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and this time to study your holy word, to see what it is you're doing in our lives. What you've done in Christ to set us free, to empower us to cling to you and know you and worship you. Father, that that our hope would be in you. Our identity would be in you. Our joy would be in you. And not in our circumstances. So that as we face these trials, that we would mature in faith. That we would grow in steadfastness. And in that maturity, lack nothing be complete in christ and that our testimony of christ will be bright in this lost world and that our hope would be with you forever and so lord we have so much to praise you for and so we gather our voices this morning to close and we rejoice in who you are and all that you are doing in jesus name we pray amen let's sing together